0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We are going to have a very exciting discussion with, I think, uh, an extraordinary individual. I began reading and following him in 1980, I believe, and have read almost everything that he has published um, uh, since that time. In many respects, Bernard-Henri Levy is the moral compass for much of our understanding of politics, culture, and history. It's a great pleasure to have him join us. I'm deeply grateful to Arts and Lectures for collaborating with us on bringing him here for his second visit to UC Santa Barbara. And having a true global public intellectual to mark the 20th year of the Taubman Symposia is really quite extraordinary. Um, He has been described as being among the most influential Jews in the world. He is a writer, as you know, a public philosopher, social activist, and filmmaker. And among his many important books are Barbarism with a Human Face, The French Ideology, Sartre, The Philosopher of the Twentieth Century, War, Evil, and the End of History, um, American Vertigo, Traveling in the Footsteps of de Tocqueville, The Left in Dark Times, A Stand Against the New Barbarism, and many other books that are noted in your program brochure. Um, When The Genius of Judaism was published in France in 2016, it was described as his most passionate work A call to arms, as one writer um, stated, in which Bernard Henri Lévy offers a new understanding of what it means to be a Jew in the 21st century. And that understanding is rooted in Talmudic argument, in which the primary obligation is to the other, the dispossessed, those who are on the margin, and those who are silent and often forgotten. It's a great, great honor to welcome Bernard-Henri Levy to UCSB. Will you join me in welcoming him?
1: Thank you, <clears throat> my dear Richard. I'm very happy to be here in Santa Barbara for the second time. I was here for the 10th anniversary of your lectures. I'm here for the 20th. And it's a, a real pleasure and a honor for me to attend this. As I was telling to a few friends, uh, gathering at a dinner just before coming, I don't make book tours. Uh, I have not time. I have not enough time left, maybe, in my life, and not time left in my schedule to do book tours. Um, This uh, book, Genius of Judaism, has just been released. I presented it in New York a few days ago, and I came here in uh, California, in Los Angeles, and Santa Barbara, to present it also, and that's it. I'm not uh, in, a, in one of these uh, book tours, which uh, are probably good things, but not really for me. So I mean that uh, it's uh, something really special for me to be in this uh, campus and in this hall where I was 10 years ago with an audience probably uh, very similar to, this of, um, to the one of tonight. The only thing which did not improve, as you can hear, is my English. But that's another, <laughs> another story. <laughs> you can watch the video. <laughs> I think there is a story. You will see that uh, the problem has not improved. <laughs> well, the genius of Judaism is um, a, a book uh, which has a certain importance for me, on which I, I have been working for, for very long I said to Richard and a group of friends, in a way secretly for for decades, there was my open work and there was my hidden work. My hidden work was this uh, tête-à-tête, this body-to-body, with uh, a language which uh, resists me, with a text uh, which is uh, a sea and an, an ocean, where I had a feeling sometimes not to be able to, 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 to swim properly. Uh, it, was, um, uh, it has been a great spiritual, intellectual, and political adventure. Um, and I, may, I led this adventure in parallel with all my other books. It was a very strange state of mind, by the way. At, during days, I, in the light of the days, I worked about uh, American Vertigo, a book about Daniel Pearl, and so many others. And at night, between myself and myself, uh, crying in, fr- in, f- in front of the difficulty of the text, nearly crying, I was uh, trying to confront this um, um, question of Judaism and of its genius, and it is the result of this uh, sort of secret research uh, long run long breathing research which is today uh, embedded in this um, in this new book, which i'm happy to to present to you if I had to to summarize um, or at least to 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 stress the the big highlights of this book, I would say probably that the first one, not by importance, the first one is the question of anti-Semitism. Certainly not the most important because I don't believe that a Jew has been called in this world to face, to confront, and to fight anti-Semitism. It is even sometimes very boring to have to fight that, to have to enter in the miserable psychology of uh, uh, these um, women and men, anti-Semites, but one has to, to do it, and the, the, the growing of the tides makes it sometimes necessary. Um, I remember that uh, t- 10 years ago, I was saying a few words of that. I was in the beginning of this research, and I said in front of you, that uh, the only way for the the anti-Semitism to to take a new breath and to take a new form and to to recruit uh, new crowds and to enlarge uh, its following was to to use the the dressing, the cosmetic, the arguments, whatever, of anti-Zionism. I I said that, and I believe it more than ever. If the question of anti-Semitism is to search the good words which can make the old hatred acceptable, which can make a haters of Jews look like a lover of something else, the language, the wording of anti-Zionism is probably the best today. I have said that to you, I I believe it more than ever. Um, Since my last uh, lecture here, we had the birth of the BDS movement, boycott, disinvestment, and sanctions, which has taken a certain force in Europe, but also in America, and especially in this part of the country. I was uh, two, three years ago in San Francisco. I, I saw how, how strong the BDS movement is, I know that in a city like Seattle, it is very strong also. And I know the, the very strange smell of these groups of people harassing, um, for example, vessels bearing um, uh, Israeli flag, preventing them from unloading their uh, goods in American ports and compelling them to, to go back to to wherever and, uh, if possible, in Israel. Those, the partisans of this BDS movement can be naive sometimes, and I know that some are. They can have the feeling of uh, uh, fighting for the, for the best. They can have the feeling to be supporting uh, uh, victims of, uh, of Israel This is precisely the trick of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism has always presented his uh, his attacks, his assaults as a necessity um, uh, compelled by the the necessity of uh, honoring the Christ, the necessity of praising the Enlightenment uh, for the anti-Semitism of Voltaire, the necessity of uh, saving the purity of the race uh, for the anti-Semitism of of, uh, the era of the nascent uh, biological science, and so on. So, of course, uh, there is uh, uh, behind the BDS movement this uh, idea of uh, taking the party of victims. Nevertheless, as always, I think, and I try to demonstrate it in this book, that the real smell is not only a smell, it's a content, and that it is a new form of the eldest and most terrible uh, hate. I demonstrate, for example, in the chapter devoted to BDS that uh, when you take seriously the arguments of the founders of the BDS movement, you you can find how little democrat they are. you can you easily uh, find that um, uh, far from being partisans of the peace uh, uh, they are partisans of the one state solution which is the way to the uh, uh, endless war and you can find also that the the origin of the of the movement its uh, Uh, genealogies the the history of even of its narrative goes in the past as far as to the end of the Nazi period when some Nazi dignitaries fled after the Second World War to some Arabic countries which gave them shelter and they did world for the first time and they did put into concept this idea of uh, the boycott, which you find in proper terms um, you can make, and I try to make a semantic analysis of the wording, which you can find again in this uh, movement of today. So, uh, more than ever, I believe believe that that the anti-Semitism will be, strong and will increase its strength by uh, going to fetch its argument in this part and this in this uh, uh, half of the political uh, spectrum, alas, alas, because it is my, the, the left, the liberal camp uh, is, uh, as always, uh, more than ever, my family and my camp, but I have to say that this is the place where the arguments stem from. I think also, and this is part of the part of the part of the book devoted to this question, that uh, Europe is um, uh, a fatherland for this new anti Semitism. Uh, that the Muslim world and especially the Arabic Muslim world is another fatherland, probably more um, Uh, even more strong because the Arabic world to say it in a few words is the only place of the world where the work of denazification has not been done after the uh, second world war the idea was spread that uh, there was one piece of the planet uh, the, the Muslim Arabic world which was spared by the Nazism. The Nazism stopped like the Chernobyl cloud at the border of France. It stopped at the border of the Arabic, Arabic world, which is, of course, not true. And uh, this occultation of the reality uh, eases and facilitates the return, of the, the return of the repress under the guise, under the form of the new antisemitism. But I show also that there is another part of the world, and not the least, which is not immune either uh, to anti-Semitism, which is America. I believe that, uh, I believe and uh, I, I, I show through historical examples, uh, through uh, modern uh, items, and through a sort of a paradigmatic demonstration that uh, we can, Prospect, and we can imagine, alas, in this country, which has always been the absolute shelter for Jews prosecuted, we can expect also a rise of anti Semitism for a lot of reasons which I develop. The only thing which I did not uh, uh, imagine 10 years ago for sure but not quite in the book, is the return in this country of a rightist anti-Semitism, of an old anti-Semitism, of an anti-Semitism in the old garments, uh, which we have seen in, the, in very recent events in the air, in the atmosphere of the political conversation since a few uh, months. Uh, the old anti Semitism is uh, shaped in uh, another narrative, um, a story of, uh, of despise, of refusal of elites, and so on. Maybe we will enter in this in the conversation. Um, it seems that this other part, the other wing of anti Semitism, is not dead, especially in this country where a, where a candidate uh, running for office. Uh, dares to say to an assembly of uh, of, um, Jew partisans uh, in last December that he knows that they will not vote for him because they know that he will not accept their money. You are very close to an history of double despise and uh, a feeling of despise by the Jews turning into a real despise toward the Jews, which is very familiar to the old anti-Semitism. Um, I was reading recently uh, in the in a page of the of the Talmud of Jerusalem a great story which uh, echoed in my mind to maybe what is happening today. Uh, the story of um, A great rabbi, Rabbi Yehuda, uh, leading uh, little yeshiva, having some very brilliant students, the best uh, brains uh, of this uh, area, the best uh, scholars, the most uh, accurate uh, spirits. uh, uh, And uh, every day when uh, Rabbi Yehuda was uh, uh, teaching his students, they saw passing around in front of the door uh, a shepherd of pigs, a pig shepherd, and uh, the students, very arrogant, this sort of arrogance which gives the extreme knowledge, laughed, did laugh after the, the shepherd of pigs. They mocked him, they laughed at him. Years pass, uh, the, again and again the shepherd of pigs goes here and there and he is despised by the students of the Yeshiva. Ten years after, 20, I don't remember, Rabbi Yehuda received a convocation. Convocation tells him, uh, you have to go immediately to Roma. The emperor Diocletian uh, asks for you. He wants to meet you. He wants to meet me. Poor Rabbi Yehuda, of course, I have the great honor to have fixed the Mishnah, but uh, emperor Diocletian, yes, of course, he wants to see you. Rabbi Yehuda goes to Roma, he makes a long travel, he is in front of the emperor, and he recognizes, of course, the uh, shepherd of pigs who have become emperor of Edom, emperor of Roma. The emperor of Roma, the shepherd of pigs uh, becoming uh, uh, emperor of Edom. Uh, knows that Rabbi Yehuda recognise him. He tells him, you despise me for so long, and so on and so on. So, I will make you, to show that I am a great guy, that I am, that I am more generous than your stupid, uh, uh, allegedly learned students, I'm more intelligent than them, I will make you some big gifts. And uh, I will give, first of all, I made you a huge gift. I, I asked you to come a Friday before Shabbat in order um, that you do not uh, violate the most holy commandment. Number two, I will give you the best bath uh, you had uh, ever had because you need to clean yourself, you need to, to rest after your trip, and so on. So he, he makes, he covers Rabbi, Rabbi Yehuda of gifts. Uh, one of the gifts is this bath. The bath happened to be boiling hot, so boiling that uh, it will kill Rabbi Yehuda. It is a poisoned gift. It is a typical poisoned gift. Rabbi Yehuda is at the edge of dying because of this gift. Thankfully, an angel arrives, pours some cold water in the bath, saves Rabbi Yehuda, and Donald, uh, Donald Diocletian tells him, tells him so you, you believe what? You believe that uh, uh, because of your miracles you can despise me, I despise you. So this story of the shepherd of pigs having become the emperor of Edom, this story of uh, Mr. Nobody becoming the king of the world, of course cannot echo to a current situation, we are in the Western world in a time when anyone, when the last shepherd of pigs can become the emperor of the new Edom, which is America, it cannot but echo to the situation of this emperor of Edom, 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 making so, being so generous, With these little or grand Jews, it is the same for him, little Jews, great gifts. At this time it was a a, a reverence about Shabbat, it was a great bath, it was some perfumes. Here it is an embassy at Jerusalem, it is a good ambassador, it is a great son-in-law. Okay, he covers the Jews with, uh, uh, with gifts and it cannot but echo the fact that there are some gifts which, when they are not um, leaning on a true, sincere admiration, at least knowledge or love of the people of Israel, are poison gifts. When gifts are not, are not endorsed by what Gershom Sholem called Ahabat Israel, love of Israel, where they are just gifts which are, dropped to you as a piece of meat to to dogs, the history of the Jewish people tells that they always constantly turn to the reverse and produce some negative and sometimes tragic counter-effects. The story of Diocletian, thinking that he was despised despising in return and changing his despise into poison gifts cannot but echo the situation of today and the the way in which the Jews in Israel, the Jews in America, the Jews in Europe are treated by the new emperor of Edom. And it is not... uh, the fact that the best friend is Judah, which will change this situation. So, anti-Semitism is back. Anti-Semitism is strong. Anti-Semitism is new. And anti-Semitism is growing worldwide. The chance is that the Jews today are more strong and tough and proud and modestly proud of themselves than they were in the past, this is one of the aspects of this uh, book which, which is released uh, since a few hours or, or days uh, even hours another another aspect of the book is the question of israel um, i I love israel I, I am attached to Israel since my Teenager age. I remember in this book I tell the story of uh, my state of mind 50 years, 60 years ago. 60 years ago, in June 1967, during the days of the, fir- the war, uh, the war of the Six Days, how the young Maoist whom I was extreme leftist, absolutely universalist, completely foreign, stra- stranger to any belief or um, piety or worship or whatever, how I felt inexplicably uh, struck, uh, demolished, and concerned by what, uh, what, what, has ha- what was happening to Israel going to the embassy of Israel, to the consulate, to enlist myself in Saal without knowing really why, going there without really knowing what I would do, and um, feeling a very strange uh, uh, um, uh, uh, thing when I, when I landed in Israel, a sort of familiarity with the country, which was nothing to me. Since then, I I kept very close to this country, physically. There is not one war in Israel. What I did not try and achieve to go there, not as a fighter, but in my way of fighting, which is making reports for the New York Times magazine or for Le Monde, and so on. And I realized in this uh, secret uh, working, which lasted all these decades, that at the end of the day, my love for Israel is, sometime, is different from the love of a lot of people I know. It is not based on the idea of a, a sacred earth. It is not based on a religious feeling which I don't have. Uh, it, it does not have a lot to do uh, with... Um, I'm not even sure that it is linked to the Holocaust. I don't believe that Israel is the last word of the Jewish identity. I think that it is a huge challenge, that it is a terrible, dramatic and great test. I think that it is a metaphysical state for a Jewishness, for a Jewish, for some Jewish values which have kept far away for, for millenaries from the bad tongue of the politics. But I don't believe that it is the last word and not even the core of the Jewish message. If I admire Israel, it is for very different reasons. In a way, more simple and more prosaic reasons. For example, I I know that in my country or in yours, there is a huge challenge, which is the question of multi-ethnicity. How to make a nation with peoples coming from so different origin, how to make live the Virgil uh, world, which is the motto of the American Republic, e pluribus unum. How to make live the e pluribus unum. Very difficult in America. It took so many fights, civil wars, riots, uh, which are not over, as you know, Ferguson, and so on. It was so difficult in France, and it is still not over in our suburbs around Paris, we are in a sort of state of civil war. I, think, I must say that since I am in age of thinking and looking, there is one place which is Israel, where this question of multi-ethnicity, of making cohabit people from Europe, from Africa, from uh, uh, Arab countries from different faiths, some Arabs and some Jews, it works more or less and probably better than in our mature democracies, which is in Israel. I think that there is, I I am speaking in front of uh, some, some of you who are political scientists, we know that for any political scientist, there is a limit state of a democracy, which is the real test for a democracy, which is the state of war, which is a state of emergency, and which is a state where the democratic values very often accept to be suspended, to be interrupted. You know in America how few days after September 11, President of America, uh, the Congress, uh, did Patriot Act one which took a few liberties with the main liberty of this country. We know in France, before America, during the Algerian war, how it took uh, not a few weeks, but a few days to suspend the freedom of press, the freedom of speech, to put in jail some people who dared to oppose the torture, and even today, the state in emergency in France means the acceptation of some... um, Uh, real suspensions of liberty there is a country and i admire this so much which is in a state of war in a state of emergency not since a few weeks not since a few days but since 70 years since in fact the very day of its birth and this state of emergency never meant really a state of exception State of exception, in the sense of uh, Giorgio Agamben, in the the sense of uh, political science, was never imposed in uh, Israel. It is a fact. I was, uh, I remember being uh, during the Second War in Lebanon in 2006 in a a unit, a special unit of uh, of Golani uh, elite soldiers. Who crossed uh, the border to go and fetch uh, uh, one of their comrades, companion, who was uh, heavily wounded. And there was in this unit, in, like in so many military uh, units in Israel, a lawyer. There was a, um, there was a doctor, there were some fighters, and there was a lawyer. Why are you a lawyer? A lawyer was here in order to be able to discuss an order to stop the application of this order if it seemed to be in contradiction with the moral values of Israel. So, again, for me, this is quite admirable. A state who, living in a state of emergency since 70 years, never accepted the facility of the state of exception. I don't know so many other examples in the world another example they will finish with that about israel but for me it's very important uh, again um, all specialists of political science know that there is a, a black hole of the political knowledge uh, a real the most uh, enigmatic enigma of the political of the political science which is the question of uh, the birth of a democracy. How can a democracy take birth? It is like a, like a circle. How can it take birth if it did not exist already before? How can a democracy develop if it was not already existent? There is a sort of platonician circle of democracy when, where the implementation of its values depend of a reminiscence and of an old unconscious knowledge Jean-Jacques Rousseau resolved the problem by building this theory of the social contract and so on, but in other terms there is this idea which we know, all of us who reflected a little about um, the development of the, the, the birth of politics and of democracy, that you don't build democracy in one day except if you suppose this unconscious knowledge of itself and it is true that uh, when some uh, eastern european countries stem out totalitarism in the beginning of the 90s some of them go back to the worst form of authoritarianism and even totalitarism it is uh, Alas, crystal clear that the so-called Arab Springs, which were supposed to embrace the democratic values, uh, uh, made a few steps in this direction, but failed uh, to embrace them fully. There is one place in the world where a sort of profane, profound, profane miracle happened. It is a place peopled by poorest among the poorest, the most doomed among the doomed, um, uh, women and men who were coming from places where there, was, there had never been any idea of democracy, Jews coming from Arabic countries, Jews coming from uh, Germany, where the democracy was not forgotten but uh, was remote, Jews coming from Russia, and so on, And who, nevertheless, lacking these uh, roots, lacking these traditions of democracy, lacking this deep culture rooted in themselves, invented overnight, in a way, a real, uh, true, uh, consistent democratic system. So I admire Israel for that also. I admire, to say it in metaphysical terms, I admire the fact of these, these people from diverse origin building a new nation on an earth mixed with the sand of their cosmopolitan tradition. Uh, a deep... Uh, heavy, uh, uh, wet, uh, full of blood and of dead earth, but mixed with the sand of which the Exodus said that it was the real prior element of the Jewish people. The sand which is said to be, in the Torah and in the Talmud, the most immaterial material the lightest, the only one which can be deplaced without movement or move without real deplacement, the th- material in which the Moses buries the Egyptian, and so on. So this sort of immaterial material, this sort of inconsistent consistency, this sort of uh, lightness inside the heaviness of the political language makes this place of the new Israel something very special, a state which is not exactly uh, similar to the others and who create in me and in many Jews in the world, even if they don't know exactly why, I did not know why for so long, a special form of attraction. In the genius of Judaism, there is also a theory about France, my home country, which is supposed to be, you read it every week in the New York Times, the fatherland of the new anti-Semitism and a place, a country less and less hospitable for the Jews. And it is true that there is a lot, an increasing number of Jews who, in France who seriously wonder if France is still their country and if it's still a place livable for them and there are is thousands who last year and thousands the year before decided to leave uh, France and to go to Israel I tried to take seriously this question of the belonging of Jews and France and I reached the conclusion to, to make the story short that if someone had not his place in France, if someone had to live, if someone was not at home, it was not the Jews, but it was the anti-Semites. And this, for a very important reason, which has been, I think, underestimated by a lot if not most of the scholars who reflected on that for one reason which is the huge uh, importance of the Jewish uh, of what the Jews gave and did bear to the, con- to the Constitution of France. What I discovered during these years and decades of research on myself on my being a Jew, on my country, is that at every step, at every stage, major stage of the history of France and of its building, the Jewish sand has been absolutely crucial, and one of the main rendezvous has been with the Jews. I demonstrate in this book, for example, That the French language, the language which I speak generally a little better than my English, the French language who is so crucial for the building of France. You, you are, you know, Mr. Noam Chomsky who built the theory of the, la grammaire générative, the generative grammar. And you know how a language can generate a nation. You know how it can be the, the first cell and the, 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 the first engine of the building, of the, of the birth of a nation to speak not like Chomsky but like Griffith. The birth of a nation, the language is at stake and at the very first ground. In France, I demonstrate I cannot enter into detail now. It will take us the night, but I demonstrate that one of the inventor of the French, maybe the first one, maybe the most important, at least the only one, through whom we know the smell, the sound the rhythm of the first French to the French who really gave the first move and the first push to the building of the French and of the France was a Jew. And not a Jew as in a Jew. The biggest, the grandest, the greatest probably of the French Jews and maybe of the Jews as such who is Rashi. Rashi, the Rashi of the Talmud, the Rashi... The commentator of the Torah is the inventor, the producer of the first French language. It is a completely unknown story, but it, which is absurd, rather unlo- unknown, but which is um, undoubtable, um, uh, as, you, as you maybe will see. I think also that if you turn to the Constitution of France, not in terms of language, but in terms of politics, of social contract. the origin of the French idea of social contract, the origin of the French idea of republic, the idea of the French idea of democracy, which is supposed to have come from political thinkers who were themselves inspired by the example of the, of the Greek cities, in reality the inspirers, the system which they quote in their books, the pattern and the paradigma which Jean Baudin describes at length in his republic is not, not the Republic of Athens. Is not the, republic of the military republic of the militarist republic of Sparta. Is not the Roman republic, but is the kingdom of Hebrews. This is one of the best kept secrets of the French history that all the political thinkers who did build and found and put the founding stones of the idea of republic on which we, French, we, European, and in a way you Americans still live, were inspired by the model of the kingdom or the republic of the Hebrews, with a lot of consequences. The Republic of the Hebrews is not uh, a military republic. It is not a republic where the kings are proud to be kings. It is a republic where the politics is something which has to be escaped and not searched. It is a place where the king has to be searched behind a uh, a bunch of... uh, uh, where the, the king is sometimes a shepherd not of pigs but of donkeys, but with a big difference that when the, when the people comes to the people and the judge come to take him and ask him to be a king, there is two conditions: number one that he is properly inhabited by the prophetic spirit, and number two that he transforms himself and that he is the that he can be or not if he is not forgotten, the theater of a real meta- metamorphosis that he becomes another. The shepherd of Donquez is not, at such, the king of Israel. It's, it needs and supposes a real metamorphosis. So, anyway, from Jean Baudin to Theodore de Best to many others, all those who make the ground fertile for Jean-Jacques Rousseau and his Contrat Social. All those who make the episteme, the the ideological ground on which Jean-Jacques Rousseau and the French Revolution put their their feet and their roots are inspired by the the model of the Jewish Republic according to the Bible. It is through this example, with this model in their back, that the French invent their, which is not completely theirs, republic. I take many other examples. The last one is this very special moment when this very special new rendezvous where the French literature which is the best of France, to be frank, the literature, the great French literature, is at the edge to collapse. At the edge to die, at the edge to end, in all possible varieties of silence. There is a moment in the French literature where uh, Rimbaud decides to to be silent, to go to Abyssinia. Few years before, Baudelaire was compelled to silence by the the, the, the stroke he had in the the Church of Namur. It is the moment, at a few decades, where Paul Valéry decides to enter in a sort of dry and mineral silence. It is the moment where Stéphane Mallarmé decides also to, to keep silent in front of the mystery and the unreachable greatness of the book for which he longs and which he knows he will never write. There is. It is the moment where the pre-dadaist or dadaist writers do the opposite, but it is the same, such a crazy noise, disorder in the language, which is the the carnavalesque reverse of the silence. So there is a moment in this, in in one of the best literature in the world, one of the few, uh, is threatened from inside, by a sort from out, uh, a sort of outburst, a sort of uh, drying on its feet. Anyway, by so many means and ways, the risk of a collapse of the French literature. And then, if the collapse did not happen, if the French literature was re-innervated, if it was re-irrigated, if it was reconnected, if it could flourish uh, uh, again, it was thanks to one great writer, French writer, called Marcel Proust, who wrote the, the novel of all of this and the novel of the rebirth of all of this. And the fact is... That is what I demonstrate in this part of my book devoted to France, that if he can do that, if he can reply to this growing dryness of the French literature by this new flourishing, it is because he is a devoted, though secret Jew. Marcel Proust was a reader of the Zohar, which is the most uh, secret part of the Jewish thought. He was inspired by the Zohar in order to think, as he does in all the search of the lost time, that the the things are like shells which have to be broken to let, this is the proper terms of proof, their smell and their spirit spread. And he could not have done that if he had not been a devoted, real, great, though again, a secret Jew. At this rendezvous also, the Jewish identity, even if I don't like this word, was there. This is another part of the, of this genius of Judaism, which makes me conclude, I say again, that... Jews made France, that they are more than at home in France. France is theirs. They they built it, they made it, they contributed, but at the first rank to make it what it is. And if some have to leave, it will not be them. And they are not those who should have to leave the battlefield or to leave the field itself. Now, for me, the most important part of the book, maybe, is what I call properly the genius of Judaism. This genius which is at stake, which is at work in France, which is at work in, uh, in Israel, which is at work here in America, maybe in a stronger way, what is this genius of Judaism and what do I call so? Uh, I, I start my uh, meditation on this point uh, with a conversation with one of my uh, children who asked me, who read a few pages of this new book and who asked me, but dad, at the end of the day, do you believe in God? do you believe in God and what you, you say God the word happens to appear under your pen in the pages which we read what does the idea of what plays the idea of God does play in your mind and in your work this question of one of my two children did put me in some abyss of uh, uh, anxiety and uncertainness because I begin to think first of all that most of the Jewish thinkers which inspired me, which made me who I am are thinkers who expressed a strong distrust again at least religion Emmanuel Levinas whom you know in America rather well, Emmanuel Levinas, probably the most important French-Jewish thinker, said that if Jewishness, if Jewish thought has one meaning... It is to, to kill religion, to fight against uh, against religion, to um, de- de-witch the world, to fight against this way which belongs to idolatry, to put a god or a piece of god or a piece of sacrality behind every object of the world. Religion, said Levinas, is the uh, enemy. The master of Levinas Uh, Franz Rosenzweig used to put in front of the the little uh, Jewish school which he founded, which his friend uh, Rudolf Aliot, there was a board uh, at the entrance of his uh, school uh, where he wrote, Irreligious I I am. I am irreligious uh, in German which I speak even worse than English, so (laughs) I I will not try. Irreligious I am, uh, not against religion, religion, not atheistic, of course, but absolutely opposed to this invasion, sur ruissellement de sacralité, which is called uh, religion the, maybe the biggest inspirer of my reflection on Jewishness on Jewish values Rabbi Chaim of Volosin uh, the author of this great book The Soul of the Live used to say that the main experience for a Jew is not the presence but the absence of God that the real question for Haim of Volosin is how to do when God is silent, when God retired, when God uh, uh, left the world, putting it at risk of decreating itself, what is then the task of the man? And Haim of Volosin said, this question is properly what does it mean to be a Jew? And the theory of Haim of Volosin was that in order to prevent a decreation of the world to follow its creation a few thousand years ago, there is one way, which is to, to study, to launch stars of worlds toward the sky, which is not a question of belief the biggest, the most important with Rashi, masters of uh, modern Judaism, which is Maimonides. Maimonides. Not in his uh, guide of uh, perplex, but in, his, in the main book, Mishneh Torah. First section, first chapter, the first section of the first book, it is a theory of knowledge. And the question of God arrives very, very late, and the question of the belief of God is not even expressed. So what I really conclude of all of that, Aïm de Volosin, Levinas, Rosenzweig, Maimonide, Gaon of Vilnius, Gaon of Vilnius, the biggest... Jewish thinker of the 19th century who was asked one day, Rabbi, if you had to choose between on one side a great believer who is really devoted to God, who not one instant doubts of of his existence, but who is lazy, who does not attend our yeshiva who does not laugh after the the shepherd of pigs, who is never there, just believe, and don't study on one side. And on the other side, a great studier, who makes the words of the Torah and of the Talmud every day more vivid, living, and vibrant, but who doubts, who sometimes does not believe, who is... Uh, st- struck, st- strike and struck by the emptiness of the sky. Who do you choose? The lazy believer or the student who doubts? And Grand de Vilna or Vilnius did not need more than a few seconds to say, of course, I prefer the latter." I prefer the second one. I prefer the Jew who studies and does not believe than the believer who does not study. And this is really, when you put all that together, when you look at the, this unique book, which makes really Judaism, which is Talmud, when you put all that together, you reach a consequence the consequence is that the real question which is addressed to a Jew the real concern which makes a Jew what is really required from a Jew is not is less to believe than to study god for a Jew is certainly an object of knowledge a piece in a system of science, of ethics, of practice, of whatever, but much infinitely less an object of communion, of mysticism, and of belief in, for example, the Christian uh, sense of the word. And I would even say that here leans probably improper. one of the main differences between Christianity and Judaism. There is always a moment, and this makes part of the greatness of Christianity, there is always a moment where a Christian worshiper decides to stop commenting Stop studying, stop questioning and decide to jump in the emptiness, in the vertigo of the infinite space of Blaise Pascal at the end of which is the bet in God. This is a great Christian gesture, this idea of a jump and of a bet. I think that nothing is more remote from Judaism than these sort of ideas. A proper Jew does not jump. He does not bet. He may believe, but before believing, he studies on and on. And in a way, he does not believe because there is not one belief. There is not one Hypothesis of predicate on God, which is not, which has not the possibility of being denied, contradicted in an infinity and succession of paradoxes, which are the work of the Talmud. When When you are a Jew, you have the choice do you think that the core of Judaism is the Torah? Or do you think that the core of Judaism is the Talmud? I don't know any serious Jew who does not know that the core is the Talmud, but if you believe that it is the Talmud, it means that as Maimonides suspected, as Rashi suspected, as Rosenweg demonstrated, the question of the belief comes after the question of the knowledge and the question of the study study is certainly the core and the proper of the genius of judaism and then the other core if i dare say of the spirit of judaism is as richard said in his kind and sweet words of presentation the question of otherness i i am a humanist jew I try to bear high the flag of the universalist Judaism, but not by a choice, not by, a, I don't know, it's not, a, it's not an option. I think that it is the, the depth of the story. And to demonstrate that, I start in this book, I, I try to reset. And to restart the most difficult question, the question which has fed so many ambiguities and misunderstandings between the Jews themselves and between the Jews and the other nations, which is the question of the chosen. What does it mean to be a chosen people? What do, does the Torah what does the Talmud mean when they say that there is a people who call themselves or who, who have been called Jews and who are a chosen people what is this story I try to go and this is the the core of the question the proper core uh, as deep as I can with a little of Hebrew which I know of this, in this question, first of all, as you know, this chosen people has not chosen, uh, has not been chosen at all, because, as the Torah says very clearly, even if it is like the stolen letter of Edgar Poe, which is here and which is never said uh, seen, but it is said in proper terms, that the the law before being proposed to Moses and by Moses to the tribes at the foot of the Sinai was proposed to the other nations without exception. The Torah says it properly, and you have tons of pages in the Talmud going in this fact that the Torah was proposed to all the children of the other nations and of the other empires, and it is because because all of them, without any exception, declined, refused, seemed that it was crazy, that it was unbearable, that it did not match with their deep creeds of habits. It is in despair that God called uh, little Moise, little Moses, asked him to climb the little hill because uh, Sinai was not the Kilimanjaro. It was a little hill in the desert where you could see the top from uh, from the bottom when it was clear weather. And he said to Moses, okay, I have a deal for you nobody wanted. <laughs> Are you ready to? And Moses said, wait a minute. I go ask, he asked, and he said, okay. I accept. So, very strange choice, which is not a choice. It is the last uh, uh, Second-rate choice, after all the other refusal. The second fact in this uh, story of of chosen uh, people is the, the word which is used to qualify the chosen people. The word in Hebrew. There is a lot of words in Hebrew which could have meant the choice. I choose you because you are the best. Strangely enough, none of these words is used in the Torah. The word which is chosen is a very strange word, which is the word segula, segula, S-E-G-U-L-A, which means, in a way, the choice, but which means also the treasure. Segula means a treasure. And there is a comment of Rashi, who says that this word of segula, which appears in Genesis and in Exodus, appears at the end in uh, uh, Ecclesiastes. And segula says Rashi means overall, before anything else, means this very special sort of treasure, which the kings of Israel did have, kept, and kept themselves without leaving it to the guard of any intendant or treasurer. And Rashi says, segula means a secret treasure. The word which is chosen to describe the chosen people is the word which describes a treasure which is secret to the others and to myself who is is supposed to have in deposit this treasure very strange story to receive a a treasure of which you are not aware and of which the others are not aware either this is what Rashi says very complicated story of uh, 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 being chosen. And then there is a third thing, a third mystery in this affair of the chosen people, of being the chosen, is that uh, of course there is the temptation to use that as a source of, um, of pride as uh, the sign of uh, superiority, as a way of being arrogant. And uh, the history of the anti-Semitism and of the Jews are full of this temptation. The problem, as another great scholar of uh, Judaism, whom I quoted, who is Ahima of uh, Volosin, expresses the problem, is that uh, this temptation of arrogance, this temptation of pride, this temptation of bragging because of this choice, which has not been a choice anyway, but let's suppose that in a way... It is, so let's suppose that it it is um, uh, possible to draw a sort of of, uh, of pride from that. What Haim de Volosin says and which is clear for whoever reads the text, that at the beginning of the story, in the Torah itself, in the Exodus, this temptation appears, and it is more than condemned, it is uh, bewitched by the holy text. And it is bewitched, why? Because there is one man, and again it is the, the stolen letter of Edgar Poe. There is one man who is the cousin the first cousin, as we say in English, the first cousin of Moses and Aaron, who is named Korah. Korah. In French translation, Korah K-O-R-A-H. Korah believes, he is not aware that the choice has been proposed to, anybody, to everybody and that he is the last choice. He is not aware of that. He thinks that God has elected him. He believed that he's an elected people. And taking advantage of one of the multiple uh, uh, little trips of Moses up the hill, he gathers the tribes, parts of the tribe. The text says 250 guys. And he tells them, but what the hell is Moses doing? Was he still negotiating? What are we still waiting? We are elected, we are the chosen, the nation, the as- assembly as itself, the assembly, the, ju- the assembly of the tribes, as itself is saint. We are hic et nunc, here uh, uh, and now, we are saints. We don't need other orders, we don't need any practices, we don't need to worship, we don't need to choose between the good and the evil. Game is done, game is over. We are elected, therefore saint, and we are the best community on earth. Moses comes back, he hears the news, of his cousin kora having convinced 250 guys that they have a sort of shortcut to the heaven they are already nearly at the last uh, uh, step what does he do he does a miracle more exactly, he, he makes a counter-miracle. He asks God to open the earth, to make it as a huge monstrous mouth, like this, and to swallow, crude and naked and uh, as in flesh, Korah and his 250 guys. And all the commentators of the Talmud wonder Why Moses, who is generally such a wise negotiator, who is always, him also, making deals, Hmm? making deals, how is it that suddenly there is no deal? How is it that suddenly he takes the biggest risk, which is to make a miracle? Because if the miracle does not work, then he's cursed himself, says the Talmud. Why does he do that? Because the biggest crime for the chosen people is to believe that he is chosen. Because the biggest moral, metaphysical, theological fault is to jump from this idea of being a secret treasure to the idea of being a saint nation with all the signs of arrogance and of pride of this sanctity. This is the worst sin and the worst possible fault. So what does it mean to be a treasure? What does it mean to be a secret treasure? My conviction, after a few decades of reading of dreaming of um, dreamy readings is that to be this sort of treasure means to be to have in deposit in secret deposit a certain a certain word a, cer- a certain amount of words or more exactly a certain way of wording these words, and to do that in secret but efficiently for all the rest of the nations. And there is, and it will be my last quote, the last example I will take, and I will go again to Rashi. There is in the the Bible... uh, In the Ecclesiastes, again, a word saying that when a worshiper, when a faithful, when a a Jew reads a verse of the Bible, he has to read it as if it had a face. Very enigmatic word of the Ecclesiastes. Or of the cantic of the cantics. I don't remember suddenly. Maybe the cantic of the cantics. It has to be read as if it has a face. And Rashi takes this word of the cantic of the cantics and in the way of the Talmudic explanation, dissection and so on, he tries to divide the senses, the meanings of this word. Number one, says Rashi, to read the verse as if it had a face Means that the world is living, that it it is not a frozen letter, it is not a dogmatic word, it is not a dogma at all. It is a living being, changing, evolving, dying, restarting, being interpreting, and so on. Crucial, says Rashi. To say that it has a face means that it is not, uh, as the Christian will say, Uh, the the, the life is with the spirit and the death is with the letter. No, the letter is living and it has to be considered as living. It has to be considered as a mobile and living material. Number two says Rashi, it means that me who reads this verse consisting in a face, I have to and I will find my own face in the mirror of this world. The reading of a verse of the Torah is a way to, to build, is a way, is a way to find, therefore to build my own face, which is my subjectivity. You don't read, says Rashi. Being a Jew means that you do not read in order to lose yourself, but to find yourself. You don't read in order to mix yourself in the ocean, in the sea, of an infinite communion, but you read in order to singularize yourself. And says, Rashid, to be a Jew, means that it is in the process of reading that a woman or a, mine or a man finds the secret of its, of his or her more precise singularity. Very strange way of reading. Very strange religion again. And Rashi says, he puts in connection this passage, this line of the cantique de cantique with another one, I think, of the Ecclesiastes. And he says, and that the very secret of the secret is that this way of reading that to be a Jew means reading this way and reading it this way applies, says Rashi that the verse says that it is valuable that it is it applies that you have to read it as if it has a face and that the verse says you have to read it as it had 70 faces, which is a, a line of the, of the Ecclesiastes this time. It has to be read as if it had not only one, but 70 faces. And Rashi wonders, why 70 faces? Why not 12 at the number of the tribes of Israel? Why not, what is the number 70? 70 is the number of the infinite in extension, it is a number of the nations. So it means, says Rashi, that the to be a Jew means to, to be to have in deposit a word read in a way such that every nation which means every single individual is able to find and to to build, and to define, and to contour its own face. It does not mean, of course, that to be a Jew means to be an apostle. It is the opposite. It does not mean that a Jew will be somebody who will preach his way of reading and of interpreting the word. But it means that to be a Jew means reading the world in a way which makes possible for the world and for the worlds of the world for the times of the time for the centuries of the century possible to anyone to any woman and man to to consider himself and to build himself as a subject and this question of bearing a treasury which is worth for all the nations. This way of having in deposit a universal secret, or a secret which consists in a hidden universality. This is probably the very secret of the genius of Judaism. And I end my, my, this book with a, a meditation on the book which is for me the most enigmatic of the whole corpus which is the book of Jonah, the book of Jonas. Jonas who is this little prophet, little by the number of verses but certainly not by his importance, the, this little prophet who is ordered to go to the capital of the otherness, which is to the capital of the sin, to the capital of the evil, to the capital of the worst enemies of Israel, to the capital of those who, if they are saved, as he is ordered to try to do, will turn out to become more than ever the enemies of his people. This story of Jonah, this Obligation to go to the other and to convey to the other this message of, this secret message by which he is inhabited. This temptation of Jonas, this temptation of Nineveh, this way of going to Nineveh which is to Mosul today is certainly the the limit but also the internal limit the most vertiginous part of the secret of judaism and i really believe that if you consider being a jew as an affair between you and you if you consider judaism as an affair of a community If you believe that being a Jew begins to celebrate between Jews a certain sort of conviviality, you miss the point. If you don't consider that being a Jew means to be overshadowed by the other and to to overshadow the other, if you don't believe that being a Jew is the name of a certain relationship with the other, you don't get it. And you don't get the the, the heart, the living, the beating heart of the message of the most holiest masters of the Talmud and of the post-Talmudic tradition. This is the reason why I am proud to be a Jew. This is the reason why I am happy to be a Jew. And this is the reason why I, ha- I have sometimes said that in some of my deeds, some of my acts, when I seemed to my own eyes to go far from my people, And to areas very remote of what I am, it was probably when I was the Jewest, the closest to my being a Jew. This is what I call genius of Judaism.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.